Wow. It is great to actually see your faces and to be able to worship together. And I know it's it's different, um, but but it is beautiful. And as we said kind of in the email, it is, it is hardly a compromise at all uh, to, to be worshiping outside because this is God's creation. And what an incredible thing that that the rain paused over the weekend. That was the first thing people said is like, yeah, they're forecasting rain. And I was like, well, whatever, I guess we'll, we'll find out. But here we are able to worship together. And uh, it's, it's great. We even have a nice, cool breeze that might blow Bob away. Bob, are you right over there? Okay. He's okay. All right. So why don't we get centered and focused here and, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time to get together. We thank you, God, that we are able to worship you. Um, God, what a gift it is to be able to be together face to face. And God, we have over the years for sure, all of us who have been a part of the church have taken that for granted at one point or another. But God, this morning we don't. This morning we are just overwhelmed with thanksgiving. And what a privilege and a joy it is to be able to get together and to sing songs of praise to you and to dig into your word and to exchange um, just greetings and encouragement with one another. God, I pray that you would continue to bless this time. May it be glorifying to you and may it fill our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you have your Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 3. And as you may know, we're we're going through this summer. We're just going to be looking at different passages of Scripture and and how we can can pray those. Uh, So many people have said, I want to grow in my prayer life. I want to understand better how to pray. And and we're big believers that one of the the best ways to learn how to pray is uh, is to pray Scripture. Because you're praying God's words back to Him. it, It can be just an incredible way to just... Um, to prime the pump and to understand, okay, what should I be asking God for? Like, how should I be praying? How should I be asking him of these things? And, and, and so uh, that's what we're going to be doing all this summer. And this morning, we're going to be doing that in Ephesians uh, chapter 3 with actually a prayer that, that Paul prayed for that uh, church family. And when, you, when I thought about this for this morning and like, what do we preach on and what do we talk about on this morning when we finally get together, we have to acknowledge the craziness that is around us. Like we have to acknowledge that, that several months ago, six months ago, we would have never expected our culture and our world to be in the situation that we are in right now. And if you look around, this is not the only thing. Like, this is strange. Like, if you would have thought six months ago and you could picture this, you would think, oh, we moved worship in the park to earlier and outside the church. You would have never been able to predict what led to this moment. But it's not just that. When we, have, or look, when we look around, we have pandemics, we have riots, we have threats of war, we have cultural shifts. Even, even the biggest idol of our day, professional sports, has been sidelined. And has been shut down. I mean, would you, did you ever imagine a time where the culture would say, ah, Green Bay Packers, you shouldn't get together. You shouldn't meet. We shouldn't have that season. It's, it's crazy. It's unlike anything any of us have ever seen. And, and I've said from the beginning, and our church staff and elders have been praying from the very beginning that we would take advantage of this opportunity. That we would understand that all of this is ordained by God and that he has placed us in this position, in this spot in time for something that he is doing. And that the worst thing we could do is to try to rush past that and to try to to skip what God is already doing in our lives. 
In short, we've been praying for revival. We've been praying that God would take these circumstances that he has given us and that he would use those circumstances to awaken the church. And I think most of us would agree that we look around and we would say, yes, we need some kind of revival. God, please do something to awaken your people. But that word revival is just such a buzzword and it can mean so many different things to so many different people. And what I want to be clear about is what I mean when I say revival. What I mean when I say revival is that it it is what we see in scripture where revival is, is, um, it's referred to as a spiritual awakening. It is an awakening to the reality of God and his love for his people. It is God's people being awakened by God to turn back to him. And It is by God that it is done. It is not something that we can manufacture or do on our own, but we tend to not like that so much because we like to control things. We like to be responsible um, and and controllers of our own fate and responsible for what um, what happens. And so we've always, the church has always been really good about trying to manufacture um, revival. But, But what that usually ends up meaning is that we redefine it. So we don't have God's definition of revival. We have our own. And so we would say things like, well, yeah, I can't awaken hearts, but, but if people, if there was revival, we start to say what that would actually look like, and then we try to accomplish that. So let me give you an example. You might say, well, revival would mean that lots of people come back to church, that the doors of all the churches would just blow wide open and people would just, would just be coming and we would have just hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people every weekend at church services. And so Working to that end, we start to try to manufacture that. And we say, okay, well, then the goal is to get as many people in the doors as we possibly can. And so then what happens is we start to change our message and we start to change our, our methods and we start to cater to just try to get the masses in. And it ends up not being revival at all. It ends up being a watering down of the church. Or another example is we, we think that revival would mean that the church would awaken to like right doctrine and right theology. And so we just go about, we, we teach and we teach and we teach. And we make sure that we, we create doctrinal tests and buzzwords to make sure that everybody is on the same page and that we can all answer the same questions in the same way. And even if you're unsure and even if you have doubts or even if you have questions about it, keep them to yourselves because we got to make sure that we say the right thing at all times. But then, of course, doubt burrows and infests in the church as people aren't free to ask questions and to to push back and to, to ask about things that are hard in Scripture and they're forced to give easy answers. That's not revival. None of this is revival. Maybe you think that revival would mean that the culture around us would start to look like God's kingdom. It would say, okay, the problem is that, that our culture at large doesn't obey God. And so we've turned away from God. And so revival would be if our culture, if our country looked more like the kingdom of God. And so we work to that end and we try to manufacture that through political means and hoping that that will somehow produce revival. But it's not. It's not revival. And actually what happens is the more we pursue those things as revival, the more we could find ourselves cursing true revival and resisting what God is actually wanting to do. I'll give you one more example. Maybe I'll take that last one and and unpack that a little bit more. Maybe you believe that revival would be that Christianity regained its popularity in this country. 
that you would say, you know, there was a time when this country proclaimed itself as a Christian nation and that revival would mean that we would reclaim that, that it would become respected, a respected thing again to be a a person who goes to church. But what if instead of Christianity reclaiming its popularity, what if God ordained that it would get pushed to the outskirts of society? And that in so happening, that the more unpopular Christianity became, that in that happening, the only people who remained a part of the church were the people who would look at Jesus and say, I got nowhere else to go. You have the words of life. I have nothing else. All I have is Christ. And that in that remnant of people, a new type of Christian community flourished of radically committed, all-in community, people who are all-in with Christ. That would look like revival. But we don't pray for that, do we? We, Has anybody ever prayed, God, please take away more of my rights so that my faith can be tested and be genuine? Anybody? All right, a couple of you, liars. All right, the rest of you, No, of course not. You don't pray. I don't pray that. I don't remember the last time I prayed, God, please make my life as hard as possible so that I would find that you are all I have and that you are enough. I'll respond to situations like that, but I don't actively pray for that. See, quite the opposite. When those things happen, we often see all of that as cause for panic. And we use them as justifications for being unchristlike. And so my question is, if God has really placed us in this environment, if he has brought all of these things together, then wouldn't it make sense for us as the church to look and to not panic and to not worry and to not stress, but to actually wait with eager anticipation of what he is going to do? Wouldn't that be our posture? Because the thing is, revival doesn't come through status quo. It doesn't come through continuing the same thing. It's an awakening. And I would say that so many in the American church have just fallen into spiritual sleep, just going through the motions. We can do all these things. That phrase, I can do all the things, I can do that in my sleep. How many of that, how many of us would be described that way when it comes to our Christian life? I can do it in my sleep. I just, I know the things I do. I get up at this time. I read right here. I go to church at this time. I sing these songs. I go on about my day. And if we have fallen asleep, then we need to be awakened. In his book, Reappearing Church, Mark Sayers says, we need to be interrupted to have our patterns halted because doing the same things only delivers the same results. Listen, our patterns have been interrupted, right? Like no matter how this all has affected you, our patterns have been interrupted. And that And that is where God works. And instead of rushing to get back to the way things were, whether your view of that is the way things were five months ago or the way things were five decades ago or the way things were five centuries ago, it doesn't matter. Instead of looking to rush back to that, we need to take seriously why we were interrupted in the first place. All of the great revivals in church history have followed after a dark period, a period where the church has looked around and said, what is going on here? And what they have always found is that the problem was not out there. It was always in here. 
And God always awakened the hearts in here. And then from the inside, it went out. And so if we want revival, we have to pray that God would revive us here. And if we're going to be revived in here, then we need to be accepting and and welcoming to the, the circumstances that God brings. We need to be able to pray, God, do whatever you have to do. And we see the preparation of that in scripture. It seems like Paul is always preparing the church for this kind of environment. And not just Paul, but Peter is doing it as well. Jesus is doing it in the Gospels. It seems he's always saying, if you want God to do this work in you, it's going to take an interruption of your life. It's going to take a shaking up. And Paul would talk about these things in different ways, in different places. He talks about the shaking up of counting all things lost that he once counted as gain. He talked about the shaking up of being content in all circumstances. He even talks about his imprisonment as this worthy shaking up. And so if anything, our our posture, it seems to be, God, do whatever you want to do. However you have to do it, revive us, awaken us. That's a scary prayer though, right? Like, I mean, if we're just honest, like I know some of you are just like, you are the missionary extreme type and you're like gung-ho and you're praying that prayer right now. Like you're just, you're done listening to the sermon, you're praying it. But most of us fit in the boat of saying, I, I want that, but I'm kind of scared to pray that prayer. I don't know that I really, I don't know if I'm really there. I don't know if I really can pray that wholeheartedly. And I get that. I'm, I'm with you. So the question is, how do we prepare ourselves for that kind of prayer? And that's why I want to pray Ephesians 3 this morning. Because Paul's writing to the Gentiles here. He's writing to them to, um, to strengthen them and build them up. And one of the big things at, at play is that he's in prison while he's writing this. And he doesn't want that to be a discouragement to the Gentiles. He's actually telling them, hey, don't be ashamed of my imprisonment. Like, this is good. This is, this is being used to glorify God. And he tells them, he's building this whole thing of of saying to them, you were once far off and apart from God, but now you've been reconciled to God. You are actually in your fellow heirs with your Jewish brothers and sisters, which would have been seen as crazy in that time that the Gentiles could receive that. But there he is reconciling people from different backgrounds and different ethnicities together and saying, no, you you are my children. And so you're to look out for one another and love one another and serve one another. And he's telling the Gentiles, don't be discouraged. In fact, be encouraged. And he's saying that my imprisonment has been used as an invaluable tool for revival here. And he's praying that they would not only understand it, but that they would be prepared. And so how does he pray for them to be prepared for that moment? What's in Ephesians 3? That they would be consumed and immersed in the love of Christ. Ephesians 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, so how does Paul prepare the church in Ephesus for the kind of work that God is going to do? He says, remember, Jesus loves you. 
That's it? Like, that's the thing? That's the big theological bomb that Paul drops on the church in Ephesus? The thing you learned the very first day of Sunday school as a four-year-old? Be consumed and understand the love of Christ. I mean, look at what he's saying. He's saying according to the riches of his glory, that this God is a God of extravagant blessing. He's not limited on pouring out revival on us. He, he's not stingy in that. He will pour out anything that you ask him for his glory. And though he, he says you need to be strengthened with the power through his spirit. This is a supernatural work. They're not supposed to be studying more of the law. That's not what he gives them. He, he, he wants them to know this mystery of Christ's love so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's, he's praying that through the extravagance power of God and, and the extravagant mercy of God, transform me. Make me see the world the way Christ sees the world. Make me, make me love people the way Christ loves people. This is what he's praying for, for them. And the center of all of that is being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And he goes on like that may you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why is he putting all that, like all these different angles on it? It's just like, got it. Jesus loves me. I got it. I learned the song. I memorized John 3, 16. I got it. I mean, the first, that's the first thing we learn. So most people would just say it. We just say, oh yeah, I know Jesus loves me. Oh yeah, I know that's supposed to be the root of everything I do. We talk about all the other things that we think are important. We say, well, yeah, yeah, of course, and and Jesus loves me. But do you know it? Do you comprehend it? Because Paul, arguably the greatest theologian of all time, says, seems to think that this concept of Jesus loving you is so deep, so complex, that you need, look at it, you need supernatural strength. You need all of the saints together with supernatural strength and with Christ dwelling in your hearts to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of this love. That seems like a little bit more complex of a statement than just something that we've gotten and we've known and we checked that off the list a long time ago, right? Like all of the saints the whole church with all of the supernatural power that dwells in us in the form of Christ, in the Holy Spirit, all of that together, working together, may get us to the place where we could comprehend the love of Christ. I mean, imagine it like this giant mountain. Imagine it like you you go into, like we moved here from Denver, and one of the things that was so awesome is you see the mountains from a distance, and the closer you get, like they're just massive. And you, you think you're going to hike up one because you can see it. And that's just not happening for most of us. Some of you could do it, but I, I don't. Like there are all these crews of people that they wouldn't just hike the 14ers. They run them like marathons. That's not normal behavior. So don't do that. But that's like they, they do that. These big runs like century, like 100 miles through the mountains. And so there are these massive mountains and there's just no way you can appreciate all of it. And if you were to look at one side of a giant mountain and other people on the other side were seeing it, they're seeing it from a different angle. If you've ever been in some kind of beautiful scenery where you finally see it from a different angle and you say, oh, I feel like I've never even seen this before, right? That's what Christ's love is like. 
if you picture like a giant mountain and all the people in all the churches across the world who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit are all circled all the way around it. And all of us are like looking and going, you would not believe what this view is over here. You should totally come out here and see it. And then somebody else way over here is saying, no, 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 this is an amazing view. Like you gotta, you gotta hear about this. And there's just no way, even if you sprinted and even if you're one of those crazy people that runs around the mountains, like even if you did that, you would never be able to grasp it on your own. You'd have to be listening to your brothers and sisters and understanding it. It is so high. It is so deep. It is so long. It is just so massive. There is no way to understand this love that would look at sinners and die for them. This love that would forgive those who murdered him. This love that would look upon compassion at the outcast and the sinner. This love that would move him to pray not only for his disciples, but for all of us for all eternity. His love that moves him to weep over Jerusalem. This love that would drive him forward at Calvary. This love that meets you wherever you are and however you got here this morning. This love that sanctifies you and shapes you and changes you. How much does that love cover? How could you possibly understand the breadth of that? How could you possibly understand the length of it or the height of it or the depth of it? And to know it. And we've said this before, but the word know in the Bible does not just mean intellectually getting it. We we do that in our culture. We think know it means I can repeat it. I can pass it on a test. But that's not know. Know in the Bible is, is an intimate experience of it. It means to be intimately acquainted with it, to to really feel that experience and have it transform you. And so Paul's prayer is that we would, with all the supernatural strength available to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and with one another, would be able to comprehend the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of this mountain, this massive mountain, to be in awe of it and to know it, to experience it, to be consumed by it that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That is revival. Not just people showing up to church. Not just some law being passed. Not just people awakening to theology and doctrine and finding a passion in that. But the people of God being revived. Like people who have been without air, all of a sudden gasping for this breath and breathing in the love of Christ. And you might say, well, yeah, that's, that's great, okay, but I still think that's awfully simple. That's for new believers. And so I already, I've got that. I want to I push on to more important things, deeper things than that. But Paul doesn't think there are deeper things than that. But maybe you're saying that and say, like, I always get that when people get bored in Christianity, and I'm so sorry, if this is you, just understand this, you're not alone. So since I've been here, there is one book that I have been requested to preach on and have some kind of study on more than any other. Does anybody want to take a shot at what that is? Revelation. Thanks, Robbie. You're like a plant. Hey, he didn't know that I was going to ask that question. We know that. Revelation. Why? Because, like, that's the one I just can't understand. Like, I got all the rest of it. I read James, I got it. I read John, got it. I read the crucifixion story, got it. But Revelation, man, that's all kinds of crazy stuff in there. Like, I want to figure that out. Okay, great. Revelation. Revelation it is. Several decades later, this same church, church in Ephesians, the, the church in Scripture in Ephesians, the church in Ephesus is mentioned again. 
This time in Revelation, Revelation 2. says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven global golden laps, lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Same church. Paul's praying for them to be prepared for revival and to be growing, growing in their faith by saying you need to be rooted and grounded in this massive concept of Christ's love that you cannot possibly understand on your own. And you would think that after decades, they would have that nailed. Nope. Like all churches, they're prone to wander. They had all the high-level things down, all the advanced things, all the things that we would put in class 401 or 501, all the advanced things. They could spot evil from a mile away. They could look at the culture and they could look at their church and they could say, that's evil, that's wrong. They got that part down. They could even expose false prophets. They so knew doctrine that when someone taught something that was wrong, they could point at it and say, it's wrong. That's a false teacher. And they were tough. They didn't grow weary. They weren't bending a knee to the culture around them. They weren't stopping coming to church. They were still together. But there was one thing that had happened. They abandoned everything that Paul had prayed for them in the beginning, that they would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. They abandoned being consumed by this love. They stopped marveling at that mountain. And that error was not a slight correction. It was not just a slight course correction. It was so central that Jesus tells them if they don't repent and remember that, then he would come and remove their lampstand from their place. And that just meant you're no longer going to represent me. You don't belong to me. Listen, church, this church has been a lampstand in this community for over 40 years brought countless meals to people in need. It's seen baptisms galore. It's sent out missionaries. And during that time, this church has remained committed to the scriptures. But just because that has happened in the past doesn't mean it will happen in the future. Every church, including Ephesus, needs revival. They need to be reminded and when we look at the culture around us and see all the things that are coming together, I don't know about you, but I look at it and I say, this has got to be the time. If we want that kind of revival, then we need to beg God for it and to pray that we would be rooted and grounded and to know this love. It's not just an emotional love, by the way. Like it's not just to, to make up our own definition of what love means. It's an objective love as played out by Jesus Christ. Do we understand the difference there? Because it's really popular in our culture to just define it on every side. Any issue you want to say, you can find people who want to redefine the love of God. But the love of God is defined in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see that. 
And we embrace that. And so if we're going to understand this, and we need to know it that surpasses all knowledge. And one of the simplest ways is to actually just watch how Jesus loves. To read the Gospels, to watch him, to imitate him. To do that together and point that out in each other's lives. And to say, am I loving the way Jesus loved? So it means, when we say comprehend, it means to gaze at this massive mountain, not draw our own picture of our own little mountain and say, well, that's love. So that's what I'm going to do. So Jesus defines this love for us. And I just, because I got too riled up in the first part, I'm going to kind of summarize this this part. I was just thinking about, okay, what is it that's countercultural about the love of Christ? We're going to know, we're going to pray that we would comprehend and know it and experience it. I just want to point out three quick aspects of it that are countercultural, that would say something about who we are as a people. One, when you watch Jesus' love, it's a self-sacrificing love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it does not insist on its own way. And if I think, if there's a characteristic I think we are desperately in need as an American church, it is this, self-sacrificing love. We tend to be willing to love people as long as it means our rights are not compromised or our comfort is not compromised. Nobody amens that part ever, but I get it. Because I don't like to have my comfort compromised. I don't like it either. But the self-sacrificing love that we see in Jesus Christ is to abandon everything that I rightfully can call my own to love my neighbor. And instead, what I so often see is that we are so quick to defend our rights, so quick to justify, so quick to deflect, so quick to, to not listen and to speak and all the things we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. I think that if we're going to have a revival of this kind of love and receiving this, it is looking at Jesus when he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what love looks like. It's not how the world's love looks. The world demands their own rights, but Christians lay down theirs. It's not only a self-sacrificing love, but it's an unmerited love. See, humans, human nature is we love people who love us back. We love the lovable. But Jesus loved those who would crucify him. Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners. Jesus loved us when we were not deserving of love at all. That's not how the world loves. And as a church, we've got to choose. We've got to say like, okay, I'm loving as Jesus did or I'm loving as the world does. But the world loves those who are lovable, who have something to offer them. They love those who deserve it. We make people, the world makes people prove themselves worthy before we'll love. But we love first because as 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Again, while we were sinners. We were and remain the least deserving of God's love in all of creation. And yet he gives it. You ever think about that? All of God's creation, we're the ones who sin. Every, all of God's creation pays the price for it. Like creation is broken and longing with eager anticipation, longing for that day when Jesus will return and make all things whole. But we are the ones who willingly rebelled against our God and King. And yet he loves us. That's what our love should look like. You don't have to prove yourself worthy for me to love you. You don't have to agree with me on things for me to love you. It's self-sacrificing, it's unmerited, and it is long-suffering. It is patient. That word, like when, when Paul says love is patient, 
We love to quote that so much, but that, that word could also really be translated as long suffering. It's enduring. It's forbearing. It's I last with you. I love you. And I'm going to, I'm going to hang in there with you till the end of time, no matter what happens. I mean, just ask yourself, you know, we've all experienced this. How many chances has God given you? How many times have you sworn, I will never, God, I, I'm, I'm yours. I will do whatever you want. I will never do this thing again. And the next day I, I flip. And how many times has he done that for you? Has his love ever changed for you? Not one bit. Not one bit. In Exodus 34, it says, The Lord passed before him, uh, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That looks very different than the world's love, right? That looks very different than our natural state. Because the world's love is short on patience. Watch how quickly people turn on others in their own camp. Again, you pick, you pick your camp. Whatever church camp you want, whatever political camp you want, watch how quickly when one of them steps out of line, they get turned on. Like now. And so today, I, you know, today you're the greatest. I love everything about you. I'm just so glad that you're here and like that. And then tomorrow, like, what did you say? You're dead to me. That's how the world loves. It's not patient. It's not long-suffering. It's not enduring. But that's not how God does. That's not how he loves. His love for you is long-suffering every day, every thought, every action, and ours is to be for others as well. To say to a person, I will love you, and that means I'm going to love you the way Christ loved you. That means I'm going to sacrifice my own rights. I'll lay them down for you. That means that I will love you even though you don't deserve it. I'm undeserving. We're both undeserving. I'm going to love you. And it means I'm not going to bail on you. My love for you is going to last. And to be loved like this changes you. To be loved, when we are like looking around this mountain and we're looking at this and we're gazing at it, we're in awe of it, and we consider the depth of this, that kind of love will produce change. More than legislation, more than, than a list, like a covenant agreement. That is what will bring change. Because that's what love does. I have a, here's a dumb, insert dumb story here. So when Lauren and I were dating, I, I was very picky growing up about what I belonged on pizza. Okay? So growing up, I was like, I understood that there were only certain toppings that were allowed on pizza. All right? Pepperoni was one of them. Um, I could handle mushrooms. Um, they could even be canned, which I know for some people is blasphemous, but whatever. Like I, there were certain things. There was one thing that never belonged on a pizza, and that was olives. Amen. Can I get an amen? All right. I don't care what color. I don't care where they're from. I don't like people would be like, well, but this is a Greek olive. Yeah, the last word of that was olive. That's it. I don't need any more. Lauren and I were dating. The first time we go to get pizza, I say, what kind of pizza do you want? And she uttered this phrase that I still like, I was so gut punched. She said, oh, I think the veggie pizza looks good. I genuinely did not even know that existed. I did not know you could have pizza without dead animal on it. I didn't know that happened. And so here, this girl that I found so enchanting and so beautiful and just so wanted to impress is saying the veggie pizza. And that veggie pizza had not one kind of olive, but two kinds of olives on it. And I said, without hesitation, sounds great. And that, right, so I'm in, right. 
But on that Sunday, my parents came and visited and, and our, the town where we went to college and they went to church and Lauren is telling my mom about the date we had and how we went and got pizza and how they had this really great veggie pizza. And my mom said, what? And Lauren said, oh yeah, it was great. It had all this stuff on it. And in the list, she said green olives and black olives. And she, my mom responded with, and Jay ate it? And she said, yeah, he loved it. And she looks at her, or she looks at her and looks at me and says, now I know you're in love. Which was super embarrassing for the second date, mom. But it was true. Like it wasn't like, I did enjoy it. Because that's what happens when you're loved. When, you, when something transforms you like that, you change. You do things that you wouldn't normally do. Not because you have to, not because you're trying to gain something, but because it's just the response. And if that's true in something as small and temporary as an earthly romantic relationship, how much more is it true when you're talking about the creator of the universe who loved you and gave himself up for you so that you could be fellow heirs inheriting everything from him for all eternity? I mean, are you kidding me? That kind of love will change you and it will compel you. It will compel you to go and love others likewise because that's how it, lo- that's how it works. His love loves other because it's a, it's a motivating love. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us. Another translation says it compels us. We have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Listen to what he's saying there. He's like this love of Christ that compels us. It controls me. I don't have any choice. I'm going to go and, and tell everybody about this love because it's changed me. And so that should propel us forward. We want to see revival. We need to pray for this. We need to pray that we'd be so rooted and grounded and been in awe in Christ's love and that that love would compel us to love others, not worrying about how awkward it would be, to not worry about what other people think in that. If if we are truly experiencing that love, it will flow out. It will flow out in us being able to listen to our brothers and sisters who are hurting and telling us that, and we will respond with patience and kindness. It will, it will turn out into people who are our neighbors, who have always lived lives that, that we have found scary or we don't understand, and it will allow us to go and to love them and to bring them meals and to tell them about this God who loves them. It will compel us to do those things in the baseball fields if we ever get to go back to a baseball field or to our schools and our churches and our neighborhoods everywhere, just rooted and grounded in Christ. Almost as if we all as this group of people are just going out and just being in awe of this incredible mountain and telling one another about it. And in the crossfire are people who are hopeless and living in darkness and are in desperate need of hearing that good news. And we find that we are able to do it. If you want that, then pray for that kind of revival. Pray that God will do anything that he needs to do. That we would be rooted and grounded in this love. And so we take communion this morning as as a sign of that, as receiving that love. And so hopefully when you came in this morning, you got um, handy dandy little COVID-19 approved capsules. I'm just going to go out on a limb right now and say, this is my least favorite way of doing communion ever. Okay. So if you're feeling that way, Robbie seconds that, um, 
If I think, do we have a quorum here? We could actually vote, and that'd be actual statement in our by- Bob. Can we make that a statement in our bylaws? This is the worst way of doing communion ever. However, however, we are still the church family, and we can still observe communion together. And so I'm going to have the band come up, and we are going to take communion together, and we are going to pray. And if you want to join me in that prayer and just amen in your heart or out loud if you want to, I don't care. But this communion represents what we know of God's love, that it is demonstrated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you didn't get one when you came in, where are the kids with the, with the, communions, the communion cups? Just so you know, one of the ideas we rejected were the t-shirt guns to just like, like slingshots and everything. Um, that idea was brought forth and rejected. Um, but what we have here in front of us, even though it is in this packaged container, when Jesus gathered his disciples together and he needed to say something to them, what he did was he gave them a picture of his incredible love for them. That this is what love means. Earlier, he had said, he said, um, greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And he looks at them, he says, you are my friends. Because Jesus laid down his life. And because he did, we are not only reconciled to God, but we are reconciled to one another. And so what I encourage you to do is to take this, and I haven't even done this yet, so I don't even know how this is going to work. Get the top part first. That's a little... I did it, everybody. Okay, not without opening the other part. So he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he's thinking ahead. Imagine what he knows is going to happen in the next 24 hours and in their lives over the next decades. And he's saying, you are going, if you're going to last, you need to be rooted and grounded in my love. And this is my love for you. My body broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So church, take and eat. And he took the cup. And he says, when you, it's this thing that he's imparting to them that they didn't even understand in the moment. But he's thinking, I know, because he says that, that, that one day you'll understand this. All this will come together. And when they are in their lowest points and they're remembering what Jesus said to them, he took the cup and he said, this symbolizes my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for the forming of a new covenant. It is poured out for you. So take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Father God, I pray that your church would be revived. We all need that. God, I know I need that. I need you to revive my heart that I would be awakened to what is the breadth and the depth and the height and the length of your love. God, according to the riches of your glory, would you grant that we be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with 
one another, with our entire church family here and across the globe, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know and to experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with your fullness. God, would you make that so, so that when you bring about everything that you wanted to bring about here through this time, that we would be found ready. That we would be a light in the midst of darkness. That we would be a city on a hill, a lampstand. That it would shine brightly so that the world would know who you are and what you have done and what that means for all of us. Amen.